0: Hi, I'm Michael and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we're talking about two films, Forrest Gump, directed by Robert Zemeckis, and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, directed by David Fincher, both of which were written by Eric Roth. I'm joined today by part of the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. And Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And we are joined once again by none other than video essayist, filmmaker... Patrick Willems, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, it's a pleasure to be back. So I'm excited because this is kind of a a continuation of a conversation. (laughs) Because when we recorded recently our Paddington episode, after we were done recording, we were just chatting and somehow the idea of talking about the Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Forrest Gump came up and we spent a fair amount of time talking about how Weird they are, and how weirdly (laughs) similar they are, but also just unto themselves, how weird they were. And so we kind of came away from that being like, I think this could be a fun episode. We should just talk about these two movies and see what happens. And so here we are. Um, So I'm excited to get into these two movies really quick. The question for people listening on the Spotify app is what other movie mashups do you want to see us do in a future episode? Because this is the first time we're talking about two films. comparing them like this okay so to just kind of start like patrick i just want to get your first like hit like what is what do you make of these movies like what comes to your mind when you think (laughs) these two movies so I've been thinking about this particular
1: topic for over a year now. In early 2020, uh, I made this long video about the entire filmography of Robert Zemeckis. And it was when I was rewatching Forrest Gump for the first time, I think, since I was in high school. It really was hitting me how deeply strange that movie is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also, and especially like, it's a strange movie. What makes it stranger is that it is one of the most popular movies ever made. Mm -hmm. It it was the Mm -hmm. highest-grossing film of 1994, and then won the Best Picture Oscar. Like it is like a like this like beloved artifact of 20th century cinema, and it's very strange. And I was also thinking about how strange it is that then, like 14 years later, the same writer wrote a very similar movie. And what's (laughs) okay? I'm going to start with like this is what I think is especially strange these are both adaptations of existing works, right uh mm-hmm. the novel forrest gump and then the f scott fitzgerald short story the curious case of benjamin button and both of these are are pretty different from their source material the 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 novel forrest gump is like full satire much darker uh it, it not not the heartwarming inspirational story <laughs> that the movie is and then the curious case of Benjamin Button is like a, a, a just a bizarre little short story where he's like he's born as a full grown adult, and so. But the idea that that the same writer would look at both of these texts and say, "But what if they were <laughs> they were stories about a man from the south?" who lived through many of the major events of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. uh, had this strange uh, ongoing relationship with a a woman he met when they were both children, fought in wars, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. had a child that he uh, was estranged from for much of their life.
2: Lived in a big house (laughs) with his mama. Who, of course, like, passes at the crisis point of the movie.
0: A house where people are always coming and going. Always coming
2: and going. Yeah. It's a frame story, so it's being told to you as a a Mm -hmm. story, as, like, the story itself is in present day. Yes. It's this, like, unusually naive boy who gets into all these, like, adventures and stuff and, like, just doesn't quite understand how the
1: world works. Yeah. There's all of this stuff. And so when I was working on this video back in January 2020... I think there's a little part in the video where I just go on like a little side tangent about how weirdly similar these two movies are. I'm like, and maybe one day someone should make a video about that. I don't have time to do it now, but someone should do it. I have not done that, but now <laughs> here we're doing a podcast about it. So
0: this is, this is better. And thank God. Yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> it's high time.
0: Yeah. Well, and so there are so many things that we can talk about. It's also interesting, you know, there are similarities about like all the different beats that happen in these movies, but also like you were mentioning there, Brian, like the framing of them, like they're both love stories, they're both like biopics about fictional people mm-hmm. and structured in that way. They're both just kind of weird anomalies, like a weird way to do a movie or like a, a a story about a person to like make this kind of fake biopic and then have them both be really weird. I think what's interesting about the differences in them is that. Uh, you know, Forrest Gump is much more whimsical and kind of knows it's a kind of a, uh-huh. a, a silly right. st- story. There's like fun yep. to it. And Curious Case of Benjamin Button is very much not. It is lacking in silliness, I would say, comparatively anyway. And it's kind of the weirder of the two to take such a realistic, stylistic point of view about it.
3: Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is this was my exact thought when I was watching them this time, which is at least Forrest Gump knows it's goofy like it knows it's goofy and there's this very strong tonal contrast, especially when you watch them back to back where Benjamin Button takes itself incredibly seriously for being the absolutely less realistic, like straight magic. It's just magic. of the two, right? Sorry to pit them head-to-head so quickly in this episode, but... (laughs) Let's get into (laughs) it. Well, I mean, we might as well, right? Like, this is why Benjamin Button, I think, ultimately doesn't work for a lot of people, whereas Forrest Gump kind of does. If the accolades and box office receipts are any measure and enduring popularity, I would say, are any measure. Setting aside for now, the Forrest Gump is bad camp because they, they've always been there. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, right. They exist. But I think, you know, Forrest Gump, as you're pointing out, Patrick, is this really beloved movie. And Benjamin Button is kind of this weird outlier in David Fincher's filmography among Fincher fanboys. And mostly that's all Benjamin Button is in terms of cinematic impact.
1: Wasn't Benjamin Button fairly successful when it came out? Like, I pre- I'm pretty sure it got like a Best Picture nomination.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think it did okay, but I think it also... But
1: I mean, it, it was not like a Forrest Gump-level phenomenon. No. Right. It was never going to be. like. No. Right. It's not, you know, again, it hits similar beats, except it is not going for like the sort of tear-jerking, inspirational moments that, you know, that Forrest Gump is. It's funny because this is kind of, like, Fincher has made a lot of very popular, successful movies. Mm-hmm. But this is this is, Trisha, as you said, an outlier in his filmography. And this is kind of like the closest he's come to making kind of a straight down the middle, like kind of like broadly appealing, like movie, like a movie mm-hmm. you could take the whole family to. Right. Th- this is the closest to that. <laughs> but but the, but it's a movie that you take the whole family to and everyone walks away confused. Right. Like I don't even like like not really saying much to each other. yeah that said i i I saw this in theaters with my mom and so did i uh, so did i and uh i i I remember uh, i think we both liked it Mm -hmm. uh in 2008 that's what i vaguely remember Mm -hmm.
0: so as a fincher fanboy i think i do like it because it is an outlier like i'm someone that is just fascinated to see a creative person that i respect and am curious about tackle something unfamiliar just because I want to see what they're going to do with it. There's a lot of like projection and, and assuming here, but I would imagine it's one of the more personal stories for David Fincher. And I feel like it's, it knows what it's about in a very clear way. And I think Forrest Gump, we can talk about this a little bit. I'm sure themes are going to be a thing to talk about. Curse Case of Benjamin Button knows that it's a story about mortality and mm-hmm. life and that like that's kind of Benjamin's superpower is that he kind of grew up in this place where death was always a part of life. And so he has like like a kind of slightly different perspective on living one's life. And so I feel like that at various points in my life has hit me very hard when watching this movie. And I think that's the thing that sometimes I connect with. But I think that requires a lot of mental work from me as audience to like pull all of that apart and, and invest mm-hmm. in
3: them.
1: I don't think it needs that much like mental work to to do. I mean, I, I think that's pretty much what the movie is deliberately doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to come out right away with, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. Okay. Who knows? <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know what like the, the cultural consensus on Forrest Gump is in 2021. Sure. Uh, so I feel like it's changed since the the 90s. I think that Benjamin Button is a more successful version of this than Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. That it uh it's like I don't I don't even love the movie. I like Benjamin Button. Uh Forrest Gump I find extremely frustrating. And uh my general feeling with Forrest Gump is I feel like it is it is doing wildly two like two wildly different things and almost doesn't seem and, and like for me doesn't really reconcile them. There's the st- really straight ahead sentimental, like like nakedly emotional level of Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. And then there is the darkly satirical aspect of it where everyone he encounters just dies yep. constantly. Mm. You know, he'll meet a politician and then we'll just say in his voiceover, and then a few years later, some people shot that man because I yeah. guess they just didn't like what he was talking about. <laughs> and it's like, it's one thing if it's like, doing like one of those like i feel like the novel is just (laughs) the satirical stuff all the time but it's doing both and it's strange because like all of the stuff like with his relationship with jenny is really straightforward it is nothing satirical there at all it is it is just like this is it's deeply sincere Mm -hmm. and but then also you look at this and forrest gump follows all he does for the whole movie is do what anyone tells him to do he just, he just follows orders. He does not think mm-hmm. for himself and he becomes wildly successful and everything pretty much goes great for him. He wins awards. He meets president. He becomes a war hero. He, he becomes very rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jenny is the one who thinks for herself and is just trying to like escape in an abusive household and, and do her own thing. And she just is punished relentlessly for mm-hmm. years and years and years and years, uh, and then dies of what I think is AIDS. Mm-hmm. And again, that is like, and like the, that's so dark. But the movie doesn't play that as like that stuff as satire. And I feel like in Benjamin Button, it is so explicitly about death from the very beginning, from like the framing sequence with like Hurricane Katrina coming in to like ravage Mm. this part of the country, the fact that he is literally like born out of death. Right. And that is what it what it's about and he is aware of what is going on around him in the way that Forrest Gump is not. It doesn't give me the whiplash that Forrest Gump does and on that <laughs> level I I find it a more enjoyable satisfying experience.
4: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I actually had a a pretty similar experience this time uh, watching them both. I hadn't seen Benjamin Button since the theater and I saw Forrest Gump a ton when I was a teenager, but I hadn't seen it in in 10 plus years. So first of all, I I Benjamin Button to them. I watched them in reverse order. So I so it was like the the movie, which is more recent and more sort of, you know, elegantly put together production wise and all that kind of stuff was the one I watched first. And I had a similar feeling to you patrick where i was like well th- there's so many there's so much disjointed stuff in both the, these movies We're like now they're doing this now there's buttons now there's a thing you know like <laughs> what, what's that? but in benjamin button it feels a little bit more consistent the whole way through whereas forrest gump I, I definitely got that whiplash there were scenes where i'm like this feels like it's out of like a judd apatow movie this feels like a joke scene but like some scenes are supposed to be jokes and then some scenes are not supposed to be jokes and they're all in this like the John Lennon scene which is like this super corny like here are oh, the yeah. lyrics to imagine but then it like zooms in on his face and he's like and then someone shot that man you know like you were saying I'm like oh now <laughs> I'm supposed to feel like <laughs> emotional about this and then also on a personal level uh, my girlfriend actually was one of the digital lighting artists on Benjamin Button which is so, so cool yeah mm-hmm. so very very good work there uh, yes. absolutely I agree Um, this is my first time ever watching with her so she was like pointing stuff out the uh scene where they he and Daisy are under the table is uh, a scene that she lit entirely on her own and with, for anyone who doesn't know what this means the cg work happens and then someone has to come in and actually put cg lights on everything to actually match so a lot of times when cg looks weird in a movie it's because the lighting is actually not matching the lighting in the room it's coming from weird places and stuff so it's like this huge very intensive uh, art form but that shot ended up winning like like her team won some like awards and like a BAFTA and all this kind of stuff. And it was on the cover of a magazine and everything. So So she's like pointing out all the little things she did and stuff. So obviously that was nice on a personal level, but just the movies themselves. I agree. I still like Forrest Gump a lot because it's just a movie I grew up with and stuff, but it was, I I did sort of get exhausted watching at this time where every 20 minutes I'm like, right. He's a ping pong thing too. And okay. And yeah, it's like, like, what? there's so much happening here.
3: Here's the thing though. Like, listening to you guys talk, Michael, Patrick, Brian, Michael, you mentioned that you were kind of bringing a lot or to Benjamin Button or kind of like reading into it very generously um, to, you know, sort of get at its themes and why it's meaningful to you. I know what you mean in the sense that there is something that's sincerely contemplative about Benjamin Button, where I think dollar for dollar, Benjamin Button is thematically richer. Like it's exploring something that is more thematically complex. It's sort of this meditation on death and life and different places in life and what that means for our relationships and all of these things. It's very lyrical and complex in a way that Forrest Gump is absolutely not. Like Benjamin Button feels like a more mature movie. It feels in no way trite, right? So that is a, something that, you know, you don't need to be a, a film expert to realize when you're watching Benjamin Button. And everything about the production quality of it conveys that to you in its tone, where it's like, here, grapple with death with us for a little while through this fable, which, you know, both of these movies are essentially fables. The problem is Benjamin Button is about a man who's Born old and ages backwards. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's just goofy as hell. Like, yep. I'm sorry. It's just, Forrest Gump is the better movie for that reason at mm. the end of the day. I really think. And I just don't know any way around that because if you can't get over the premise and the premise just is weird and doesn't make any sense and doesn't work and isn't really grounded, right? That's the thing is that. Benjamin Button is trying to play like it's this super grounded love story. Right, It's right. a love story. It's historical, <laughs> right? Here are these straight ahead historical events. World War II and people are dying and like, ah. But then <laughs> it's about a man who's born really old and right. is digitally, digitally aging backwards. Like... When I watch it, I'm just like, I can just see Fitzgerald sitting drunkenly somewhere looking at a baby going like, this guy looks like an old man. Yeah. <laughs> what, if, what if he was an old man? And that's all it is. Yeah. And, you know, at least Forrest Gump knows it's a comedy. For some reason, Benjamin Button hasn't realized that it's a comedy. Right. That's kind of where I land at the end of the day and where I think a lot of people, with why Forrest Gump is so beloved, I think, is that the the personalities And the essence of the fable, like the characters in Forrest Gump, all of them are big, right? Lieutenant Dan is really big. Mm -hmm. Like Jenny even is big in her own way. And especially the other, like Bubba, come Mm -hmm. on. Like these Mm -hmm. are big characters. And that's who we expect to occupy, you know, sort of fables and folktales. Like this is an American sort of folktale. That's comedic. And Forrest Gump knows that. And so it's existing in its own space in the correct space of cinema for itself, <laughs> right. which Benjamin Button is not, I'm sorry to say.
2: Right. No, I, I totally agree with with that. Because I was watching these movies, going like, yeah, why not have these weird over-the-top parable adventures with these characters and stuff? But in a sort of fincher way, Benjamin Button is trying to pretend like it isn't a big over-the-top adventure. It's trying to pretend like it's sort of a quiet drama. And I it works for me because I like the mood of the movie. I just like like sort of the way I feel watching it and stuff. But I agree that it's sort of it feels disjointed and stuff. At the same time, there is, as Patrick was saying, the disjointedness to Forrest Gump where you're like, but how, do you know you're a comedy? (laughs) Like at which point, because I'm like the plot of, Every sequence of Forrest Gump is basically an Inspector Gadget episode. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Where, like, the the, the fool doesn't realize he saved the day. And at the end, everyone's like, good job. And he's like, I did. I guess I did. I'm always on duty, you know? And it's just like,
1: okay. I mean, it's that, except (laughs) other people just die or lose their legs. And he's just like, oops, oops. (laughs) Yeah. This is all true. (laughs) Uh <laughs> I can't actually argue with any of this. And I think these are the things where like I like Benjamin Button Moore's movie and I do like it, but these are the things that I like I have an easier time buying into just the mere premise of it than the clearly than Trisha does. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I I think that little prologue thing with uh Monsieur Gatto and like the clock going the clock. backwards and stuff like that yeah. sort of like it's fun okay. Because from this, I, I get a very, like, Jean-Pierre Junet vibe from that level of kind of, like, like because there is whimsy in in Benjamin sure. Button. There is the, the the guy who got struck by lightning seven times mm-hmm. and things like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: For me, like, that little, like, story at the beginning kind of sets the tone where it's, like, this is going to be, you know, uh, more somber, more grounded than Forrest Gump, obviously. But it is... Also a fable, and you do look at sections of it, like you look at the the visuals of when he's out on the tugboat initially, and it does feel like I mean, even though it's like in the real world and in history, it looks kind of like a fairy tale.
3: The bullets are lasers.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like
3: bullets sometimes are lasers. Right.
1: And I do think if it if it could reconcile all of these things better, I think it could be a great movie. And I don't think it is, but I still like it And in the way that, for instance, it's at least for me, like, even if not everything clicks together perfectly, I feel like it is at least like sort of emotionally consistent with like, I know how to pretty much feel about everything going through. Mm -hmm. And the thing with Forrest Gump, I'm just like, a lot of it is like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know (laughs) how you want me to react to this. Do you even know what, like, on the one hand, like, yes, they do get that it is like, it is big and it is like inherently kind of funny, but still with a lot of. That, I'm like, I, are you sure what you're saying here? Is Forrest Gump supposed like is is the joke that by following orders he's like you know he, he succeeds and like you should not like think for yourself uh is is the point supposed to be that he is a harbinger of of destruction and death (laughs) wherever he goes this these are the things where where the movie does not really want me to think about these things i I mean like based on the way it was received the movie wants everyone to just be like cheering and crying and fully on board with all of it Mm -hmm. and that's why it like confuses me so much even though it is a very watchable well put together well acted movie yeah definitely
0: Hello, listener. I am here with Trisha and Brian. Trisha, what are we about to do?
3: We are going to talk about Loki, episode four.
0: Loki, episode four, for our miniseries. Brian, where can people listen to this Loki miniseries?
2: Ah, what a natural uh, conversational question. Um, it is on our Patreon beyond the screenplay. Go, go get it. Exactly.
0: Yep. So the link is in the show notes. If you want to follow along as we watch Loki every week, it's all there on the Patreon, as well as our monthly patron exclusive, which most recently was The Departed, which is super fun. So all that is waiting over on the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. Link is in the show notes. Let's do it.
3: I just wish there was some shadow of a doubt or some other kind of fairy tale construction to Benjamin Button, one thing Benjamin Button really reminds me of is Big Fish. Right. And I love Big Fish. Big Fish is great. But Big Fish works because the stories within the frame story of the dying parent are fiction, right? And, you know, Billy Crudup's character in that movie doesn't really know what's strictly fiction and what's embellishment, right? There's this helpful construction in like, well, he says this about his life, I don't really believe it, but there's probably an element of truth in there, right? So we're watching essentially a biopic, but of, you know, the life of Edward Bloom, uh, which is Albert Finney's character. Um, Also, you know. Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. Thank you. I was like, Obi-Wan Kenobi, also played by him. (laughs) But there's this helpful framework where there's a sort of a fairy tale, tall tale, you know, veneer over the whole thing. And, you know, at the end, we see sort of there are these elements of truth in it. But, you know, he thought it was fiction the whole time. If Benjamin Button were like that, where it's like we're reading this journal of this person. And, you know, if Kate Blanchett's character were like, you know, I saw him a few times and he seemed younger, but he said he was aging backwards. I don't really know. He seemed like he existed out of time. If there was some kind of doubt from her where she was not completely if she didn't nurse him while he died as a baby, (laughs) then it'd be a little bit more affecting, I think, where you're not, your brain's not doing the like, this is literally true. The movie wants me to believe it's literally true.
1: Mm. I think, honestly, hearing you talk about this, if it wasn't explicitly Hurricane Katrina.
3: That's a big problem of it. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's goofy. I like the idea of a hurricane of this impending like you know it's it's like 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 this like apocalyptic like feeling Mm -hmm. coming in like like it's like the end of her life and this destruction is just like on its way i like that but katrina places it and especially in 2008 places it so clearly in like immediate recent history in our world and if you just if you just kinda like erased the Katrina part, I think that would actually like go a long way towards some of this stuff. Because yeah. he's not meeting a lot of other historical figures. It's like like right, World true. War One and Two happened, but I mean he's not like on the front lines in the way that, you know, right. Forrest Gump went to exactly. Svietnam. Calling
0: Watergate <laughs> in to the Yeah. Right. <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. So I think there's Something interesting about the time that we're kind of talking about. The the time that these movies were released, like the years that they were released. And and I think the premise thing is definitely true, Trisha. I had a friend when the trailer came out that was like, that's the most disturbing trailer I've ever seen, and I will never see this movie. Wait, for mm. Benjamin Button? <laughs> for Benjamin Button. I will yes. say that
1: initial teaser trailer, the one set to oh my god, the the, the, yeah. the the Aquarium is genuinely one of my favorite like teaser trailers of all time. It's it's beautiful. I, it's beautiful.
0: Right, but it really creeped out a friend of mine. So, it, so I think there are just fundamental like the premise is not going to click for people. I think there there's something interesting about Benjamin Button coming out in 2009 or 2008, and Forrest Gump in 1994. When I was watching Forrest Gump, rewatching it, I was like, I don't think they could make this movie anymore. Like, right. like people don't go see movies like this. Also, could Tom Hanks get away with
1: that performance now? I mean, the Tropic Thunder trailer feels
0: like less ridiculous than it (laughs) did in 2008. Exactly. Yeah. There's a whole can of worms there. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels like this relic of a time where like that was a kind of movie that could exist. And that would be like you're saying, Patrick, like celebrated. And like, I remember hearing about it all the time, but like wasn't allowed to watch it because rated R. And then we watched it, I think, in like a social studies class in middle school as like a way to learn about American history and blah, blah, blah. Also, Forrest Gump is PG-13.
3: I was going to say, Forrest Gump is not rated R.
0: Right. I think, I mean, my parents were strict about certain things. (laughs) Yeah, it feels rated R by today's standards. In
3: your parents' mind, (laughs) it was rated
0: R. (laughs) Yeah. And so Curious Case Benjamin Button, I feel like coming out in 2008, it almost, like, I think at that point, we couldn't have had a Forrest Gump. So I think the Fincher approach to it is maybe the only way that we could... Like deal with it. Sorry, we could have had a Big Fish, though. I'm sorry, we could have. Big Fish was like 2003, though. I
1: mean... Mm. A thing I'm going to throw out here is because I I feel like, especially now looking at Forrest Gump, one of the major talking points about it is that it is basically just like the ultimate boomer celebration.
3: (laughs) I mean, truly. (laughs)
1: We're the best generation. Look at all the cool stuff we lived through. No (laughs) one had as good a time in the 20th century as us. And that perspective also was di- unlike uh, on, on, boomers and that generation was different in like the, in the post 9-11 world of, sure. of benjamin button so like i don't think they would necessarily make the, a movie that's like just like going through the greatest hits of like the 60s <laughs> right. and 70s and all that stuff in the same way farce gump is such a quintessential mid-90s movie in that right. way right
0: mm-hmm. right i think i want to mention about katrina is that you know watching the behind the scenes for Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which are really interesting and I recommend it as pretty much all of the behind the scenes that exist for Fincher's films. They're much more in depth and reveal like, this is what filmmaking looks like. And it isn't just, we interviewed the cast on set and they talk about the movie that you just watched. Right. But they like, while they were shooting and prepping shooting is when Katrina hit. And I think it like destroyed a bunch of sets. And like, so it was kind of written into the movie because it had affected the movie and the crew and the places that they were shooting and so like at the time it felt like oh this should be part of the dna of the movie and like Mm. these people's experience because we were there so it's interesting to hear about that and then think about it like Mm. you're saying patrick and like you were suggesting trisha that it it does ground things in such a reality like in forrest gump you cut back to him on the bench and occasionally like really he's been talking about all of this in the last like hour to this person that's been sitting. It's so, like there's some unbelievability there, but it's a very different kind than like...
3: Here I am with my dying mother, yeah.
0: Right, revealing right. to her daughter that her actual father was a baby old man that grew into a <laughs> young <laughs> baby old, old man baby. You're,
3: you're doing it for me, thank you. <laughs>
1: um, can I bring up the question of Eric Roth? Please. Because I feel like this is part of the premise of this episode. Does anyone have Eric Roth's filmography handy? It is fascinating because he has genuinely an incredible filmography. Yes. Mm. He's a legend. Starting in the 70s, but then like really like post Forrest Gump, The Insider and Ali and Munich mm-hmm. and uh and then you know uh A Star is Born, he has Dune coming out like yep. later this mm. year. He, I mean, he's just been one of the major like like premier just Hollywood dramatic screenwriters for decades now, and uh, and it seems like he can kind of you know work on what he wants. Uh, He's you know won enough, or at least like made enough like awards favorite movies at this point. When I was first fascinated by like this topic that you know these movies being so weirdly similar, okay, I, I spent like maybe an hour searching for interviews with Eric Roth where he talked about it or said something about the fact that he wrote. Like these like bizarre, like not identical, but twin movies, like a couple times when Benjamin Button was coming out, some people were like, you know, this has a lot of similarities to that other movie that you Mm -hmm. wrote. And he was like, you know, I, I, I didn't even really think about it very much. I I guess there are some things in common, but I think they're pretty different. Like, I don't know if he's just like play, if this is like a, you know, an (laughs) acting or whatever, but (laughs) He does not get into it at all. And no one pushes him on this. And I don't know, could any of you find <laughs> any other stuff where he talks about it? Because it is, I think, genuinely insane that that someone has not been like, can we do a long sit down interview where you just explain this to us? Because right. why did you do this twice?
3: Is this you asking Eric Roth for a long sit down interview?
1: <laughs> right you know what? You guys have had screenwriters on the show before. Can you see if you can get <laughs> Eric Roth? Get Eric Roth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to know, like, (laughs) here's my thing. How many years was it after Forrest Gump, like, won every award in the world, made all the money in the world? Did he decide, I want to write this other movie, and I'm going to do it almost exactly the same? I'm going to take that story, that that bizarre, like, drunken F. Scott Fitzgerald story, (laughs) and just do, like, a companion piece to Forrest Gump. Was he like upset that Zemeckis made it too sentimental and he was like, no, it's about <laughs> death. I'm going to make it more explicitly about death. I'm just really hoping
2: that Dune opens with Kyle MacLachlan being like, did I ever tell the story about the time I was... <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, the only thing that I, re- I saw was that actually both of Eric Roth's parents passed away while he was working on Benjamin Button. Mm. So you know obviously the story is already about death and and obviously fincher is bringing his own thing to it but that's kind of i think something that is pretty present in the work as we were mentioning
0: yeah and i think fincher's dad passed like early 2000 so mm-hmm. I, I haven't watched an interview where he directly addresses this but speaking of big fish i did watch uh, an interview conducted by john august john august interviewing eric roth and we did get to talk to john august way back toward the beginning of the podcast and that was really fun
1: maybe maybe just like email him and be like hey you, can you can you get eric to come <laughs> on the show can you connect us yeah
0: but so something that eric roth was talking about was his process and it was really interesting to hear First of all, just how long he's been around and how Mm -hmm. he's aware, but like can casually say like, yeah, well, you know, I like I worked with Kurosawa and I've worked with Spielberg and Barnes Scorsese and like Leo had some notes on this thing in a way that doesn't feel like name droppy, but just like I'm in the industry, like I'm in this business. I am a story craftsman and that's like what I do. But he was talking about his process being very like intuitive, like he doesn't do a whole lot of outlining and he just sits at his like m s dos program that he still mm-hmm. uses or or something crazy like that, yeah, and every morning you know writes the first scene the next day he reads what he's written and then writes more, the next day he reads what he's written and write writes more, and so I could see him in his process from this the little bit I've gleaned, not realizing as he's adapting the story. That it became the kind of right, same right. thing that he had done for Forrest Gump.
2: Well, it reminds me of... Because they're they're genuinely art artists who don't look back on their careers and stuff, who just sort of think about the next thing. And I think that can be very positive because... It means that you're not dwelling on the past. You're not you're not sort of re- well, hopefully you're not like recycling things on <laughs> purpose, not. at least. Right. But yeah. the downside, obviously, is that you don't remember what you've done. And it makes me think of um, we've probably talked about this on uh, the podcast before, but the Aaron Sorkin Sorkinisms supercut videos mm-hmm. there's like three of them on youtube right. which is like characters saying the exact same line word for word in three different sorkin projects and i think it's so much that there's no way he's like going back over scripts being like that was good let's put that in here that was good right. let's put that in here because he wrote like freaking every episode of the westway right like or most of them the first four seasons yeah of the, of the first four seasons also so- to be to, to be fair aaron sorkin was doing a lot of cocaine back then of course yes <laughs> yes but just i i sort of Think of it as like when you hear your you know dad tell the same story over and over again or something like that, like he doesn't realize he's not going back over his notes of the last time he hung out with this group of people and being like, did I tell this last time? He's just like, boom, boom, boom. Here I am. And here's what I got. And, and that kind of thing. The only problem with screenwriting is then that is in stone for the rest of time now where people can look back and be like, oh, you did th- this thing here and you did this thing here and you did this thing here. But I think that it's it's not surprising that some artists just aren't really paying attention to that stuff. And Benjamin Button and Forrest Gump feel like completely different movies from the outside. You know what I mean? You would never think of those two movies as anything similar if you had only seen them 20 years ago and didn't remember them or anything like that. But when you actually look at them back to back, you're like, holy crap, these movies are the same movie. So it's a weird external, internal kind of thing that that is there.
3: And I do just want to quickly mention that also... Robin Swycord, who's a wonderful screenwriter and does primarily book to film adaptations.
2: She wrote Little she, Women 94, right?
3: She wrote 90, 1994 Little Women, yeah. which is a fantastic movie. Uh, but she also worked on the adaptation of Matilda from 96. She mm. did Memoirs of a Geisha, Jane Austen Book Club. This is kind of her thing is is what she does. And she also worked on the story I like actually, you know, she has a story credit on Benjamin Button. And so it wasn't just Eric Roth sitting in a room by himself, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Um Right, he See, so she wrote the initial draft, and then he uh, took yeah. it and made it more like Forrest Gump. Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Bingo. But also, who knows at what point David Fincher, you know, stepped in and was right. also bringing right. all of the Fincherness to it. Right. So I think it's a little bit more shrouded in the case of Benjamin Button. I mean, development always is, but, right. you know, I think especially in that case, I think Eric Roth is, it's not like every single word of Benjamin Button was started in the brain of eric roth and then here we are right right, right.
0: Yeah. like i think even spielberg was developing it for a while like yeah. i think it was in development for a long time and people mm-hmm. couldn't crack it slash visual effects just weren't there to to do it
3: and then were they in 2008
0: i think they are pretty impressive I
1: mean, I, I think this looks pretty good. I would argue this looks better than most modern
0: de-aging. I feel like the the best of the best shots in this feel like they could be like today and are better than... I mean, I think a, a really key thing about it, like, like I think the reason
1: why a lot of the VFX shots in this work better than, let's say, some of it in, like, Marvel movies is that, like, when you have the digital de-aging in, like, a Marvel movie, it's in this, like, you got, like, this high-key lighting... Where it's just like everyone is really well lit and they're out in like yeah. just li- li- right. like a brightly lit room. And uh, so every flaw in the VFX is on display. And then in this, like when Brad Pitt shows up again in the dance studio. Near the end,
3: it's mm-hmm. one of the best examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he
1: is like shrouded in darkness. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's the classic it, Very smart. Yeah, yes. it, it's, it's, it's the T Rex scene in Jurassic Park. It's like let's put it at night with like mm-hmm. rain to uh to you help. Like you know, disguise the visual effects and blend them into the scene. Like let's put this this VFX shot in heavy shadows, so with, you know it's not jumping out at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, great makeup. Just like the, the the gradual evolution of like these characters aging and de aging over the course is like almost like shot to shot because a lot of it is kind of like you know montagey. Is it's I I still think it's impressive as hell.
2: Yeah, I th- I think the the unfortunate thing is the first couple times. Uh, you see him, it's, it's like some of the worst work. So that I think yes. that like your brain is like, oh, this doesn't look good today. But then I found myself not just because of my, you know, again, personal connection to it. But like I found myself as it went on and it became more like Brad Pitt, you know, as an old man kind of stuff. I was like, oh, this works. And I like can't see the CG-ness for 90, maybe 80, 90 percent of the of the shots um, unless I look really hard for it. But you're right that like the first few shots are just like, they're not great.
3: No.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, for me, it, it doesn't take me out of the movie ultimately. Whereas like something like Rogue One, where they like go really hard on it, like. Yeah. Takes yeah. Me out of it a little sure. Bit.
1: Again, it's also, you know, when we know, like when we know Brad Pitt is in the movie and it's like, I mean, it's the same thing as like when a character has like just makeup on, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. they are, we know that's them. And that that this, a thing is being done to make them look different for this part. That's not even the same scenario as like let's just make a person who is now dead completely from, from scratch <laughs> right, right. on right. screen, right. and they're not there in person.
3: Or let's put Kate Blanchett's voice here in Al Fanning. Well, she's.
2: That's what it was, right? I was like, something's wrong here. Yeah,
3: yeah. I don't think that choice is the one either. That was. I bizarre. mean, it's the same thing. Where?
0: Wait, which one is that? All of the young them have adult voices.
3: Elle Fanning is there with her red hair, and she's pretending to be dating checking Betty.
2: out old Benjamin, which is weird.
3: Yep, <laughs> and there it is, Kate Blanchett's voice coming right out of her mouth, and I just, it's okay. If you can just get on board with this premise immediately when you see old man, baby Benjamin Button and like you're, yes, I'm here for it. Great. And God bless you if that's you, then maybe you're fine with Kate Blanchett's voice in Al right. Fanning, you know, then and maybe the rest of it where it's like all the, you know, again, for the time it was really impressive work, but it's still like the strings are showing. I just feel that they are. And part of that is because of the premise.
1: Can I just say, I have never noticed Kate Blanchard's voice coming out of Elle Fanning?
3: Really? It had
0: to be pointed out to me. I, I didn't realize. Really? I clocked that something was weird. Right, but That's it what wasn't I did. until someone told me what it was that I was like, oh, that's why this feels off. Yeah. But it did feel off.
3: I remember sitting in the movie theater being like, wow, we made this <laughs> choice?
0: Maybe, I think I'm just stupid.
1: I just, I, I, I didn't <laughs> notice it in the theater. Say, yeah. And I <laughs> did not notice it today.
4: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Kind of one of the last things I want to talk about with both of these movies, this kind of dovetails into it, is that I think these movies, despite their flaws, are really interesting in their episodic nature. Mm. Yes. And I think both of them have episodes that are amazing. And the casts of these films are great. And it's weird because when I think about Forrest Gump, I kind of forget how big of a role Lieutenant Dan plays. Like he's there for so much of the movie and he's a really important character to have on this journey with him. But like him and Bubba, like the whole Vietnam Sequence like mini episode is really powerful. Like, I feel like you get to know him and Bubba, and then you kind of understand Lieutenant Dan and his family because they have those fun flashbacks. And then by the end, you know, you've gone on this whole journey and it's really great. And so I think about that a lot and I think about. In a curious case, of Benjamin Button, when he's in Russia and, you know, Brad Pitt and Tilda Swinton getting to have like night hotel love Caviar. story develop. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like those are two that stand out to me is like these little stories within these bigger movies mm-hmm. I find really enjoyable, partially because... The actors are so great, and it's fun to get to mm-hmm. see like see that play out as as part of these bigger journeys that we're on. Mm-hmm.
2: I totally forgot, or did not forgot. I never didn't know that Mahershala was in Benjamin Button, and I was like Taraji and Mahershala together this again, but there. for the first time for right. Hidden Figures.
3: See, I thought you were going to say Jared Harris, who I also right completely I also forgot was in Benjamin same. Button and is really great in
1: this. Yeah. So he great. Is. Yeah, and everything, uh, and doesn't kill himself for once. It's really nice. Yeah, uh, It's so nice. <laughs> but that is the thing. I think because these are these are long episodic movies. E- like regardless of your feelings about them as wholes, there's like chapters in all of them that I feel yeah. like everyone can get on board with. Yeah, like uh, you know, like I am not crazy about Forrest Gump in general, but I'm just like I don't know when he gets into ping pong. I'm pretty on board with that. I'm right. having a great time, and uh, that, yeah. I, Lieutenant Dan being very sad in a bar on New Year's. I'm on. Also, Lieutenant Dan is importantly that the only character in Forrest Gump who realizes this is really screwed up and what's right. the deal with you, and why right. does this keep happening to you? <laughs> yeah. my take on that is he is the Frank Grimes of. I love the the Tilda Swinton section of Benjamin Button. There is specifically one shot that is like burned into my mind of her in an elevator with like the hat down and like the hat casting a shadow down over half her face. Mm -hmm. Like it's beautiful. Also, this is the first movie shot by Claudio Miranda. And Mm. uh, very nice. uh, He does a really great job. But yeah, but there are all these little chapters. Oh, actually, one thing uh, that I actually think is relevant to bring up comparing these two movies is the perspective um, in them because like Mm -hmm. Forrest Gump is told explicitly from Mm -hmm. Forrest Gump's perspective. He is telling this story to basically us the whole Mm -hmm. time. But Benjamin Button is kind of like filtered a little bit where it's like from his diaries, but it's his diaries being read and Mm -hmm. then like annotated kind of by like dying Kate Blanchett and then also like there, there's pages torn out. So it is like it's not straight from him. That also gives the movie like this different tone where it's mm-hmm. like he, ha- he is he's being selective, I feel like, about what he he, he puts in, in, into the book and all of that, which does also raise the question of the section where he talks about Daisy getting hit by the car. The Magnolia sequence? The Magnolia sequence. (laughs) Where he somehow
2: knows what everyone was doing for the last 24 hours, yeah.
1: Yeah, he suddenly has this, this like, omniscient view of everything happening in Paris that he doesn't have for the rest of it.
3: Sure. It's magic, you guys. Yeah. Because everything in Benjamin Button is magic.
0: Right. I feel like, you know, maybe the cops came and were like, this is what happened, and like the (laughs) cab driver explained this. I don't know. If you reach far enough... You can get to
1: it. The time that he spent in Paris, he was interviewing everyone involved. He was (laughs) doing detective work. He's like, I know what happened, but I need to know exactly who is to blame. Right? Exactly. Why did you broken shoelace?
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: That that's one of those sequences that like.
2: It works in a movie that's told by a by a narrator who is omniscient. You know what you get in like
1: Magnolia or something. I'm Not saying Magnolia works. If Ricky Jay were narrating that,
2: Ricky Jay, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get so no, you get so many of those. Like like oh this this thing happened and then this like there's plenty of those movies from like the 90s and and early aughts, right? But this is like wait a minute, it's like the Hobbit problem of like you're telling the story, but how? But you weren't there for some of this. So like what's going on here in terms of the uh the The sort of sequences, the chapters, and stuff. another thing that I appreciate is this sort of frame story thing of like Forrest Gump, Fight Club, Benjamin Button, where it's like it, the the story's being told to you as entirely as a flashback basically, and I think the the cool thing about all of those movies is the story is not over at the during the telling of the flashback, and I think Forrest Gump and Fight Club get a, do it a lot better than Benjamin Button because Benjamin Button all that is left to happen is this relationship with with Daisy and her daughter and then and then Katrina coming in basically but Forrest Gump and Fight Club both sort of do this thing where they're like and now we're here and there's like 20 minutes of story left what actually happens now the story is not finished yet And I think that's really cool too is that I think there are plenty of movies if a romantic comedy opened with the couple telling their kids like do you ever tell you how you know I met your mom and it's like well okay, so we know the entire outcome of the story right now, you know, and I think that these are movies where we don't know the outcome. We don't actually know what is happening, even though we are with this character in present day. And I think there's there's something cool to that too.
3: Yes, I agree. I think though that where the ending falls or sort of like the final chapter of the story falls in comparison does something different in Forrest Gump. Because of who Forrest Gump is, and sort of the overall tone of the movie, there's this assuredness from us. We get, as an audience, get this assuredness that Forrest Gump is going to be fine. Right. So whenever, like, crazy stuff is happening around Forrest Gump, we're like, that dude is fine. We know him. Mm -hmm. He's on a bench. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he's pretty glib about everything that's going on, or he's just, you know, nonchalant, I suppose, kind of telling his life story, even when he's talking about the deaths of people, as you pointed out, Patrick, where it does this total thing where we are kind of relaxed at every moment where even when bombs are going off around Forrest Gump, we're like, Forrest Gump is okay. Even if everybody else around him is you know, possibly going to die and probably will. But because of the absence of Benjamin Button in the frame story, we're filtering this through the the POV of someone who is already dying. And we know Benjamin is not there. Right? We're pretty assured from the beginning of Benjamin Button that Benjamin is dead yeah. by the time the movie starts. So it's reasonable to assume. It, again, creates this more melancholy sort of tone to Benjamin Button, where we know how the story ends, and it ends with Benjamin's death. Right. Probably, wherever it's going from here, Benjamin is not going to make it out alive in a way that we're, for sure, Forrest Gump is going to make it out alive and okay. So it creates this different sort of, like, stake to the whole thing. Not that I think anybody you know, Reasonable thinks Benjamin is going to die on the boat in World War II, right? When there's still right. one and a half hours of movie <laughs> left to go. I don't think anyone thinks that's what's going to happen. But it does, again, there's there's this weight to death by having the main character having already died by the time the movie begins. Right. That Benjamin Button really sort of dwells in. And is very affecting. Like, you know, I'm sitting here talking crap about Benjamin Button because I think it's funny to do so, and I'm allowed. <laughs> right. But, it, but it's really affecting. You know, both of these movies make me cry for totally different reasons, though. Right. right, right. Like, um, for Forrest Gump is mostly just because of Alan Silvestri's score. Right. Um, and and Benjamin Button is because it, it really, you know, has this sort of it hits you in different ways in more complex ways.
2: I mean, it's definitely a better ending than if Daisy was like. Uh, nurse, bring in, bring him in, and then the nurse brings in this like <laughs> newborn, oh, no. and she's like, "This is your father. Say hello." <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know.
3: Oh god! Oh god! Oh god!
2: And and then and then they die together as like the
0: the go. Good night, down. Daisy. Yeah. Good night, Benjamin.
1: I would give them some some points if they did that because it would be so deeply weird. Like, it's a weird movie, but yeah. that, especially if Katrina came in and destroyed the hospital, that would be one of the strangest movie endings of all time. Right? Yeah. But like, but this, but this is the thing. I mean, right? The, like, you know, in the beginning, little like prologue thing. There's this clockmaker whose son dies in the war and makes this clock that goes backwards because he likes the the idea that maybe we can go back and like bring the things that we lose you know back to us and then at the end of the movie you see like the clock just in a basement as like a hurricane is coming in and just like washing it away like everything dies that is like the point (laughs) it's it's like like you know even if you get (laughs) even if as you get old you're really getting young and hot You're still gonna (laughs) die. die. You're still dying.
0: You're slowly turning into Brad Pitt, but you're still gonna die. We all end up in diapers. Yep. To defend Forrest Gump a little bit, because I feel like there's been a lot of, like, uh, pro-curious case Benjamin Button happening a little bit. I will say that I think one of the things I also, cause I also love Forrest Gump and I also like you, Brian watched it a ton when I was a kid
4: mm-hmm.
0: for the trailer for Forrest Gump also made me cry. Like it was like, I saw it just when I was getting into trailers and making movies and it's like a three minutes and 45 seconds. It's Jeez. the whole goddamn movie, uh-huh. but the score is like, it's, it's absurd. It's over the top, but it made me cry. But I do think that there's something that is interesting. And like you were saying, Trisha, like both movies make me cry, but for different reasons. Forrest Gump, I don't read him as much as like, you know, this is how you should live your life or like this is, you know, be like Forrest Gump. He's kind of like a, you know, like holding up a mirror to society almost. Of course. You know, I think, you know, when he's in the army, I feel like that's the most one of the most clear like places right where he's like the sergeant comes over and it's like why are you such a genius gump and what are you here to do he's like well i just do whatever you're saying he's like you're gonna be a general that's like exactly what the (laughs) art so there's like a ton of commentary happening but what i always find and and so kind of along the way you're kind of looking at this why i was mentioning the trailer one of the lines in the trailer is like look at the world through the eyes of forrest gump and i think that is really like interesting and i like stories that kind of show us how weird our normal lives are and i think Mm -hmm. forrest gump manages to do that a lot of the time but it also sets up this ending that like we're all saying here there is a change that happens and it you know once we're with forrest i remember being like startled because suddenly i wasn't safe anymore like you were saying trisha like where you're seeing him go on this journey suddenly we're in real time and it's like, what's, what's going to happen. And if like that does a lot of work to also set up the most beautiful scene of acting ever where Tom Hanks comes in, finds out Forrest has, you know, he has a son and for like the first time ever, basically, do you see him like acknowledge how difficult like a life is. Right. uh, Yeah. When he asks, you know, is he, is he smart or is he like me? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, it's a beautiful moment from Tom Hanks, obviously. But I feel like that's also when the movie takes this weird like left turn and like suddenly hits me with this sledgehammer of emotion of like oh god like yes wow that's it's just really powerful yeah
4: Mm -hmm.
1: and i I just want to be very clear here i know i have mostly like criticized forrest gump i think that scene is genuinely incredible same Mm -hmm. my issue with the movie is i've said like it often doesn't to me doesn't seem to know what it, it it's saying or how it wants us to feel about things i feel like that is a scene that where there is like it knows exactly what it's doing it is like it is so clear about about everything there is no doubt about its intentions about its function everything is working perfectly and uh yeah i i think that's like so easily the best scene in the movie and I'm like, even when, it, like, with all of my issues, like, up until then, I, right there, I'm, I'm just like, god damn it, this, this, this works. This is, this really, this really works. <laughs> yeah.
3: mm-hmm. And I will say that Forrest Gump, I think, ultimately holds together sort of better than Benjamin Button does, where Benjamin Button, I think, is kind of sort of taking bigger risks because it's, you know, operating on this sort of thin ice of a premise that could break at any moment and often does for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Forrest Gump is held together pretty concretely throughout. Part of that is is Tom Hanks' amazing performance and just commitment to that performance throughout. But part of it is Jenny. I think that the counterpoint of the Jenny story with you know nothing bad is ever gonna happen to Forrest Gump, and we know that. And so we're able to have fun on that ride. But a lot of bad stuff happens to Jenny all the time. Yeah. And Robin Wright is incredible, always. Mm-hmm. But her performance here and the Jenny storyline is the only thing that makes us care about what happens to Forrest. Forrest doesn't change. He's not capable of changing. So there's no arc to the movie unless he changes someone that we care about. And he he ends up changing everyone, right? He changes Lieutenant Dan um, in, in a really big way. And the other people he encounters are dramatically affected by the actions that Forrest Gump takes. But unless he changes someone that we care about, like Jenny, we're not going to care at all about this movie. Mm-hmm. And he really does his presence, you know, changes her life and and her life is just the story of sort of ongoing tragedy over and over again. And so at the end of the movie, the scene that you guys are talking about where we kind of finally get to see that Jenny has stabilized and found her feet and, you know, has this incredible son and like all of the things that are coming together in that scene, it's because it's the culmination of Jenny's storyline too. Right. And her presence in that scene, just her complete, for the first time ever, she is the one who is okay and Forrest is so shaken up Mm -hmm. and so, you know, you know, knocked off his feet by what's going on. It's just really, really beautiful. And everything before pours into that scene and pours into the whole final chapter of Forrest Gump, where you know, Jenny is finally the one who's like, would you marry me, Forrest? Right? You know, and mm-hmm. that's inverting things. It's, it's playing the same melody, but in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah, she's such a critical part of it. And and the movie, yeah, like you're saying, it, it earns that moment in a way that I feel like this time, more than any other time, I didn't see coming. Like watching Forrest Gump this time, I was sort of having this a little bit of that whiplash of like what is this movie and like now we're here and like ping pong blah, blah blah and then like it just comes and like funnels down into this beautiful point where this happens and then it's like jenny like has to die and it's so sad but like yeah that she wants to like marry for like i feel like the movie takes a really like intense emotional turn and it feels a little bit like out of place not in like a wrong way but just it caught me off guard, I guess, watching it this time because so much of the movie does have this whimsy to it and a, a certain sense that everything is going to be okay. That then to like have it be such a bittersweet like ending, I don't know. It's intense. It's not fair.
3: There's a decent amount of movie left. Right. That's the thing. Right. Is that after Forrest gets off that bench, there's a whole chunk of movie left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And none of it is the same kind of movie as the movie we've just seen up until that
0: point. Yeah. You know, there's a whole other discussion we could have about like biopics and what is the purpose of them. But it, but it is interesting that in both of these movies—that's a
1: whole other Patrick video. We already have the Zemeckis <laughs> video. <laughs> so okay, so just to check, you when you say biopics, you just mean like movies about uh of, of characters like
3: life. a cradle to grave,
0: basically. That's right, like cat. like fake biopics. Yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it.
1: Not not in the way about like real people, unless there is a Benjamin Button. <laughs> 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 and, right. and and eric roth just knows about these these unique people and he just needs to tell their eric stories roth is
3: actually aging backwards yeah. is the thing
1: yeah exactly <laughs> right based on the interview i saw with him
0: i don't think so but maybe
1: <laughs> but michael i know I know what you mean about just like this format of like telling the thing that i find so fascinating is so there's a, a sequel to the forrest gump book
4: mm-hmm. which
1: i read when i was like 17 yeah yeah, that th- in which the Forrest Gump movie exists. And apparently, like, what Tom Hanks has said is that they were talking about making a sequel to the movie, and then 9-11 happened, and they're just like, maybe we just don't, don't deal with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Probably the right way to go. Probably. Yep. I mean, I don't know. He goes to space. <laughs> it be fun. Tom, Tom Hanks <laughs> and Gary Sinise
2: already went to space together. Right. It's fun. And it went great. And it was. <laughs> yeah. There were no problems.
3: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin. Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
4: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
0: Why don't we move to lessons? What lessons we're going to take away from Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Forrest Gump. Brian, do you want to start us off?
2: I think one thing that struck me this time watching both of these movies was the sort of exposition that comes from a naive character narrating stuff that they don't understand but we the audience understand and that's a very specific thing but I think this is a, a lesson that you can take and put in any script basically which is that sort of one uh, two plus two kind of thing of like the the script has given you this much and you totally get that what it's actually saying is this so one example is you know, start off on a disturbing one, but like, oh, her daddy, Jenny's daddy must have really loved her because he was always touching her and that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, we know that Forrest doesn't get it, but we get it. And there's no, th- there's nothing other than that subtext in that line where we're like, oh, got it, you know? And then, you know, when when Forrest is running through the football field and they uh, he says, who's that? He says, that's Forrest Gump, just a local idiot. And then the next line is Forrest saying, and would you believe it? I got to go to college too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we put together so much from those two lines of like, he told him he was an idiot, but he saw him running and therefore that's all you need to get to college, you know. And then in Benjamin Button, you have the, the clockmaker story uh, where the son goes to war and then it says the next like, line of, of narration is, and then one day a letter came. And as soon as you hear that line, you're like, okay, I get it, you know. And then I think the next line is, and their son came home. And you're like, okay, I get it. And of course, the script does confirm like, okay, he came home in a casket. They buried him, blah, blah, blah. But we are putting all that together before before the script is telling us, you know, and I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of good examples of how to do that in both of these movies where you only need to give the audience and it especially works with a naive character, right, because you can have the naive character say something that they don't fully understand, but we as the audience hearing it fully understand, but even without that there there's just a lot of really good examples of how to only put the the sort of minimal required amount into the script for the audience to go, "Got it, all right, you don't have to say anything else. I totally get what you meant by that check so yeah that was that was the thing that struck me
3: mm-hmm. This is actually kind of related to my lesson a little bit.
4: Okay, yeah, go for it.
3: I want to talk a little bit about symbols and Jenny's house. Mm -hmm. And Jenny's house is a really great example of a recurring symbol in Forrest Gump. And it's, it's only in three places. We only see it really like three times. And it does exactly the three things that a recurring symbol should do, where the first time we see it, it represents... Everything about Jenny's childhood, the abuse, the disadvantage and the pain, right? And we understand, by the way, that's such a, a critical piece of Jenny's backstory that informs everything we know about Jenny. That's all you need to know about that character. And so every single choice that she makes is loaded for with empathy from us. Like, we're never going to judge Jenny. We know where she came from. We've seen the house. Then when she comes back to Forrest in the middle of the movie and she goes down the lane and she just starts picking up rocks and throwing rocks at the house. We understand it's this visual representation of the struggle we've just watched. Jenny has been throwing rocks at this house her entire life, mm-hmm. right? Trying to get past this thing and has, you know, so far been unable to do so and and we see it's very literalized. We see her miss and miss and miss as she's mm. trying to hit this house with rocks. And then I lo- Robin Wright's performance is amazing. I love the line from Forrest where sometimes there just aren't enough rocks, mm. right? This thing is so big, you can't get past it. And then the moment at the end where Forrest has the house bulldozed to the ground yeah, right. is just so incredibly beautiful. That's, That's weeping. Solid. We're all just weeping. Right. Yeah, saved. <laughs> but it's because it's a symbol That is texturally established to mean something, reinforced to mean that same thing, and then brought back and recontextualized. And it gives us that catharsis at the end when we clearly understand what the symbol means. When Forrest has that house bulldozed to the ground. So beautiful.
2: I'll I'll also add really quickly that I think the second time we see it, when Jenny's throwing rocks at it, there's a sort of a sense of like she is confronting it for the first time, too.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All of this. One thing that doesn't work as well is uh, the hummingbird Mm. in benjamin button which is just so literalized and explained to us but also in a way that doesn't really mean anything because the hummingbird means infinity (laughs) but the movie's about death and how things end which is not infinity so it's about love that lasts for infinity
1: Maybe the hummingbird should have also died at the end
3: I, in, in I the think hurricane. so. Like, what? Not
1: to be extra bleak, but maybe that should have been the final shot. That the hummingbird gets, like, smashed against the window and dies.
3: <laughs> First of all, a symbol that is added in that doesn't belong in a story, that doesn't naturally occur in a story. The house where someone grew up is a symbol that is very well integrated into everyone's life. It's a symbol that we understand. It comes from the history of literature and cinema it's not layered on top like a hummingbird that comes out of nowhere and is out at sea and you have to add a line to explain it was weird that that hummingbird was out at sea that far and its wings mean infinity we have to explain that to you too and then here it is in a hurricane at the end um it's not an organic symbol it's not a symbol that ends up meaning very much because it's not deeply personal to any of the characters and isn't actually sort of thematically That resonant. It's actually more thematically muddy. So, not that there aren't working symbols in Benjamin Button. There are. There are some really beautiful symbols in Benjamin Button that do work. But the hummingbird, I don't think, is one of them. I'm sorry to say.
0: I agree.
2: It's also one of these weird things where hummingbird in real life has a deeper symbolism. It's it's sort of representing joy, and like the Aztecs believed it was like the messenger from uh, from your ancestors coming back and stuff. But the movie doesn't explain it that way. And two. No movie should expect that, you know, just like some symbolism that a deeper thing has. I happen to, to know that for reasons. But like nobody knows that. Like, why would anybody know that? You know. So it's like, <laughs> right. don't put stuff in your movie and then explain it. But also expect people to know more about it than is explained. Yeah. As opposed to the house, which needs no other context than what is in the, uh, in the text itself. Yeah.
3: Precisely. Unless it's like a an ongoing theme from you know literature, like where we all understand what the color red means or whatever. You know that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The the hummingbird. I forget that it's in the movie every time I watch it, mm. and it feels the most like I don't think. They knew what to do with this. So they just, they did it, but I don't think they felt confident.
1: It's kind of like the rat showing up at the end of The Departed.
4: Like, <laughs>
0: which we just talked about. <sighs> it's Brian's favorite part.
3: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> C- look, CGI animals that just show up right at the end of a movie to try to act like it's deep.
2: That it's- was the CG. The rat was not CG,
1: to be fair. It- wow. <laughs> the background is fake, though. Anyway, yeah, so, I was yeah. going to say <laughs> Is there like a TV tropes page for that? for just like the symbolic animal it
0: enters the, like the final shot? Yeah. <laughs> there should be. Probably. Yeah. Yes. The other thing that both of you guys are talking about, that I just want to kind of like highlight is that it, it's, you're also talking about how they're using filmmaking to help tell the story. And so there are the like these visual symbols. And like you're saying, Brian, there's like a line gets set out loud and that paired with the visual lets us connect all the dots. And so there's just a lot of like clever filmmaking happening i think mm-hmm. in both of these movies that make them fun to watch just on a movie level
3: and for the record i think that the feather is a less effective symbol in forrest gump sure. i don't it's not like i think that everything in forrest gump is a perfectly effective symbol i think sure. the feather is pretty clunky and almost on the level of the hummingbird yeah. but jenny's house is 100 percent.
0: maybe it's a feather from the hummingbird it's all it's all <laughs> circular. A giant white hummingbird.
3: <laughs> yeah. Wow.
0: My lesson really quick is, is kind of more just about the kinds of stories that I want there to be more of. And mm. Trisha, you mentioned early on, I believe, like, yeah, that these are fables. And I like movies that are that and, and like the framing stories that we've talked about help signal to you this thing that I've spoken about before that I like in films where the movie's just going to tell you, we're going to tell you a story. This is a movie turn on imagination, fun lens. Like we're not going to try to make this like a gritty, real, like portrayal of things. Curious case, Benjamin Button kind of goes there, ends up there a couple times, admittedly. I like these kinds of stories. I want there to be more about them. And what I appreciate about both of them, and I guess why I keep kind of mentioning the, the biopic or like you said uh, Trisha kind of cradle to the grave story is that I like that both of these movies are about life and death like it's not Mm -hmm. just like they happen to be about the story of someone's life but like death and what you do with your life are deeply woven into the stories and the narrative and the text and as we talked about really explicitly in in Curious Case of Benjamin Button I like that we have both of these movies because I think they're very obviously very different approaches to it the fincher curious case of benjamin button is a bit more detached and you know people have called his films cold and i totally get that i think for me in this case it leaves room for me to enter the world of the story because I don't feel like the emotion is being pushed upon me Mm. but also Forrest Gump is great because as you were talking about the score and all the filming like it pushes you into the emotion and makes you feel all those things so I think it's really cool to have two examples of this weird kind of fable story that, as we've just been talking about, also uses filmmaking in all the different ways that you can to tell a story. So, these are both really interesting movies to study, and I want there to be more like these. And that's my life lesson for the world. (laughs)
3: Benjamin Button is really beautiful though, too. Mm. Like, just to say that it looks incredibly gorgeous and that shot of tilda swinton that you talked about is exactly the one that i immediately thought of but lots of other shots in here where kate blanchard is up in the gazebo and she's like dancing Mm -hmm. in the gazebo and like it's just it's very fitzgerald right it's like romantic uh Mm -hmm. filmmaking and benjamin button is really beautiful in that way
2: is there always a daisy in Fitzgerald,
3: yeah. Look, he got hung up yeah. a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Patrick. What lessons are you going to take away from these movies? Okay.
1: Well, first of all, one thing that I I do just want to say, if you guys are coining the uh, the cradle to the grave,
3: I certainly did not coin that. By the way, that's uh, from screenwriting biopic lingo.
1: Okay. Okay. But. Yeah. Um, I think you should do an episode on Cradle to the Grave movies, ah. uh, but also compared with the, uh, the Jet Li DMX movie, Cradle to Cradle the Grave. Cradle to the Grave. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I, I, that would be a great episode. I'd love to listen to it. Yeah. Sweet. A good lens through which to explore. Exactly. Yeah. What can we yeah. learn yeah. comparing this Jet Li DMX movie <laughs> to Forrest Gump? But okay, uh, in terms of lessons, so this I don't know how much of a lesson this is, but it's something that I it's I mean, it's a technique I was struck by that I'd forgotten about. There's a scene in Benjamin Button where I believe Daisy has first returned to New Orleans and she and, and, and Forrest go. Well, not far. So she and Benjamin <laughs> <laughs> these unusual southern men. Right. But she and Benjamin go out for dinner. This is and it's it, it's right before um the like gazebo scene where she's mm-hmm. doing ballet surrounded by mist and it looks amazing. But I'm really curious if this was a directorial choice or if this was written into the script because I think either one I'd believe. So they go to a restaurant to have dinner. And in this scene, you hear the audio of them having this whole conversation. But visually, we just see, and it's all like from Benjamin's perspective, just him like looking at her walk. It's like, you know, the conversation is happening, but it's just lingering on him just sort of like taking in her, like being there with him, being back in his life for the first time. And it's so plants this scene in his perspective and like makes mm-hmm. them and makes like what he's feeling so much more important than what they than what they're talking about mm-hmm. the movie doesn't do that at any other point point. and also for a movie that's often kind of detached from benjamin just kind of like observing what he's doing like reading from his diary i'm not sure there's another scene that puts you in his head as much as this one and i thought that it's, it's such a simple technique and I thought like and that I immediately I like, sat up as this was happening. I was like, mm. oh, OK, this is this is good. This is I'm 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 into mm-hmm. this. And also, I don't know if because I could see Eric Roth j- just writing like VO after each line just saying like we just we stay in Benjamin's perspective, just watching her and like taking in her beauty. And uh, I thought it was
0: good. So there's a lesson. Uh, that's a good technique. Watch that scene. Mm-hmm. Effective scene. I want to know now, yeah, if it was in the script. Occasionally, I feel like Fincher maybe doesn't know or doesn't want to deal with huge blocks of text. Because as you Mm. were talking, I'm also thinking about like Social Network, where Mark Zuckerberg is taken out to the club by Justin Timberlake. Mm -hmm. And it's like a big, long Aaron Sorkin talkie scene. And so Fincher sets it in the loudest possible nightclub where you can barely hear the dialogue. Mm-hmm. That seems like the greatest sound mixing I've ever heard. Uh-huh. R- R- it's R- great. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I feel like sometimes venture just like, it's like, there's a lot of talking. I don't know how much of this detail is actually useful. So, like, let's do something like crazy with it. Yeah. So, I could also see that big part of it. <laughs> but as, regardless, it's really effective. Like mm-hmm. it. Awesome. What have you guys been watching? Trisha, what have you been watching recently?
3: I watched this movie Back Around. Oh, yeah. Which was from 20. 20- yeah. Have you seen it, Brian? Yeah. Oh man, I really enjoyed it. It's from 2019. It's a Brazilian film by a wonderful Brazilian filmmaker uh, whose name is in the show notes. I really liked this movie. It is a very slow burn. It is a movie that is about something that is incredibly obscure until at least halfway through the film, and it equally obscures its own genre in a way that I I found really interesting where for the first, you know, no one told me anything about it. So I'm going to try to avoid telling you guys too much about Mm -hmm. it as well. But for the first like hour of the movie, it kind of has a bunch of different genres simmering in it where it sort of has this ominous quality to it. Yet it feels sort of like a, a, a fairly straightforward drama potentially. And it has sort of like Western elements to it and, and all of these things are kind of mixed in there and just sort of simmering. And then as it hits the midpoint, it starts to really ramp up and gets really interesting and wild by the end. So I really, really liked it. It's a, a surprising and very cool movie from this filmmaker. I'm very interested to see more from him. So strongly recommend Baccarat. Uh It's streamable on a number of platforms. You can just rent it.
4: So yeah,
2: and, and as Trisha said, just go in without really knowing don't anything look it up. Yeah. and and also do don't expect at any point that you know what the movie is
4: because
2: <laughs> like, no. it sort of <laughs> feels like a movie where you're like okay I kind of get it and then the movie's like no but you, know. you
3: do not yeah. yeah exactly you do not so
2: also Udo Kier is in it who is always in insane movies
0: mm-hmm. cool Brian what have you been watching uh
2: well as I mentioned before um I am rewatching all of the Coen brothers movies in order uh, in, in true uh-huh. Patrick Willems fashion <laughs> um, all, all i need is a, a case of wine so my the most recent is the sort of the trilogy in between oh brother and no country for old men where they sort of didn't have anything huge but it was the man who wasn't there intolerable cruelty and lady killers "Man who wasn't there i i've seen the most of these three movies uh, but i hadn't seen it in a while and it was just really fun to revisit it it's just this weird but entertaining noir film with Billy Bob Thornton and James Gandolfini and Francis McDormand and like a 16-year-old Scarlett Johansson and it is one of their most just stylized like if we talk about a fable or something like that is one of their most just like we're just putting it all out there and, and have fun uh, it's actually based on The Stranger uh, the, the novel that I love and have also tried to, to write an adaptation of. And uh, yeah, I just I recommend that one if you haven't seen it. It's not perfect, but it's just it's a it's really interesting and it's it's really solid and it's really watchable, I think, is the important thing. A movie I had not seen in a long time and had not seen as much is Intolerable Cruelty, which I was like, this is so damn good.
3: (laughs) Yes, I love Intolerable Cruelty.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I saw it in the theater and I liked it and I watched it maybe once afterwards, but like within the year that it came out or something. So I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I think it was a weird movie when it came out because it was kind of like we're saying with Benjamin Button, where it's like you don't quite get a Fincher movie, you don't quite get a You know, it's like you don't quite get.
3: It's a rom-com. You're like, what are you doing, Coen's?
2: If you're going to like see a George Clooney, Catherine Zeta-Jones rom-com, you're going to feel like what the hell is happening? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And if you're going for a traditional Coen Brothers movie, you're still going to get kind of not that, you know. So with time and rewatching it, I was just like, man, this is so much fun And, Mm -hmm. and it's like really smart and. There's one scene that I remember my friend and I laughed out loud so hard in the theater. And that is still a a genius, gorgeous moment, which I will not. um, Is it the one
3: with Wheezy Joe?
2: Yes, it is. (laughs) It is amazing. My friend Andy and I, I'd like literally texted him. I haven't talked to him in two years. And I was like, I just watched that scene. (laughs) Wheezy Joe. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, and Lady Killers is fine. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's not one of their best, but it's a fun time. Tom Hanks (laughs) is great. Uh, Speaking of Tom Hanks, Irma, Irma P. Hall. Mama, collateral. Mama uh, mm-hmm. is is great mm-hmm. in it, and you know J.K. Simmons. Uh, like, uh, there's yeah, it's just a, a really fun cast. I would say don't rush out and see Lady Killers if you have not seen it, and have also not seen some other Coen Brothers movies. Go watch them first. But yeah, it is a it is a perfectly fine Coen Brothers movie.
0: Nice, nice. Okay, it's been, we've gotten the latest report.
2: Yeah, the journey. <laughs> Probably the last report because I feel like most of the rest we've like already talked about and stuff. Covered. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Okay, cool. So I wasn't planning on talking about a video game, but I became obsessed with the video game recently that I just want to... It's a unique video game, and I think it should be talked about more. I'm a little bit late to the party, but it's a game called Frostpunk, published by 11-Bit Studios. Alex told me about it. Our producer, Vince, told me about it, and it was recently available for free on the Epic Store. So I bought it, or bought it for free, and started playing it, and <laughs> it's it's like a city-building survival game. And so like if you're into like civilization or like SimCity, it has a lot of the things that you want in a game. It's very well balanced. But what I was struck by is the story setting of it where it's kind of as if Snowpiercer, right? The movie where they're on a train and the world Mm. is frozen over. It's basically that, but you're building a city. And so there's a, a singular generator and your job is to keep your people warm, but you also have to keep your people fed, but you also have to keep them housed and provide medical equipment, but you need to be gathering resources while you're doing it. And so the story context makes it really compelling where like you can enable different laws. So sometimes you need children to go gather coal. And so you have to pass a law that's like, child labor, sorry, that's what we're doing. But it makes you feel the weight of those decisions. Oh my God. The balance of the mechanics does the thing that I love about a lot of video games, which gives you this perspective that we don't often take, which is like a bigger picture sociological viewing the world as systems and people as resources and even like human happiness and like hope and discontent are resources that you have to manage. And I think it's a useful framework to dip your toe into a little bit occasionally just to like, this is also how things work on a big picture scale. Zoom out of your head and like look at how weird the world is. So it's a really fun game. And I also really like the perspective that it it puts me in. So Frostpunk, highly recommend. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Awesome. Patrick, what have you been watching recently?
1: Great question. This actually, I, I had to think about this for a second because I, in normal times, I feel like I i maybe watch like a movie a day. And uh, I've, been so, <laughs> I've been so busy working on a, a, a project that, uh, I'm, I'm not watching as many movies as I would l- like to. So I, I, I realized the main thing that I, I've been watching is uh, in my spare moments, I've been catching up on the TV show For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus, which uh, I don't know if anyone here has watched it.
3: No, I really and, want to, though. Uh,
1: it's really good. I have one episode nice. left um i there's two two seasons the second season ended i don't know like a, a couple months ago i think and i have one episode left i've been maybe tomorrow's the day that i watch it if i have like an hour free i was i was talking to a friend recently who had just started watching it and didn't know the premise going in i knew the premise going in and he was so excited by like the opening 10 minutes of the show which revealed what the the premise is that i i realized like oh that i i I I thought everyone knew this. It sounds amazing to watch that way. So I, for anyone listening, I will not actually spoil the the hook of the show. Um, just check it out. If if you're not hooked ten minutes in, uh, then maybe just stop there because uh, <laughs> I I can't. But I also can't imagine not being hooked by it. But the the very the non spoiler premise is it's basically like you know it starts in in, in the 1960s. It's it's about the U.S. space program. But it's basically the. It's sort of set in an in an alternate reality where the space race didn't end because normally, like you know, they kind of like we got we got to the moon and then things kind of like petered off a little bit from there. It's like great, we did it, we did it, we got to the moon, cool. <laughs> let's stop funding NASA as much. Like the second season is set in the the like the mid '80s. Like they jump through time mm. very very quickly, mm-hmm. uh, and the ripple effects of everything go out and start affecting like. Like politics and technology and society and all of these things within the country and the world. Hey, I uh, you know even even uh, Forrest Gump's best friend John Lennon, uh, you know, shows <laughs> up in, in, in the show, wow. not played by an actor like on TV. It's like a fascinating sort of like sociological thing, just seeing the way they build this alternate history. But it's it's also just like a a really like in, in the way that like Apollo thirteen is exciting. Are the in the way mm-hmm. that you know the right stuff you know is great i mean it is a, a a show about about the space program and about nasa and these astronauts and test pilots and all these things and there's like some characters are real historical figures and then a bunch are just like these great wonderful like new characters created for the show and as the second season has been going on it has become incredibly suspenseful and uh, and it is it, It's genuinely one of my, my favorite Shows of the past few years Nice And yeah, I, I would highly recommend it To anyone who Likes space stuff
0: Nice That's really exciting Because I like space stuff And yeah, I've been wanting a, a show So I'm going to check that out It's definitely worthwhile You mentioned that you're like really busy or something Are you like <laughs> working on Any kind of uh... <laughs> massive <laughs> massive project finale to you know, about. yes
1: i'm working on a really strange an, an inc- what i've realized is an incredibly strange project that uh is very hard to also explain to people who are don't already know what this is. <laughs> so somehow i uh, i spent the last like year and a half of my non youtube video essays threading in a very dumb uh serialized <laughs> narrative throughout the whole thing and somehow and again this thing it, it the, the narrative involves myself as myself and then several of like my just friends from high school playing themselves <laughs> uh and I guess we we tricked enough people into kind of caring about it that we were able to like you know get like a budget and resources to just make like a mini movie that is the season finale of all (laughs) of this and uh because we've been treating it like a season of television and and so yeah so uh i've had a nice on the one hand it's a nice break from writing essays uh which i really kind of needed i was like on the brink of burning out there uh and Mm -hmm. we've just been basically making a movie for a little while and it'll you know That's hopefully amazing. we'll we'll wrap it and maybe at this point I don't even want to say anything about like when it'll come out because' I'm, I'm very bad at gauging these things <laughs> it's going great so far it's very very silly um we're putting everything we've we, we we've got into this uh every every wacky idea I am uh working very hard on it and I'm very stressed out all the time um <laughs> but it's um it's been fun it's it's really been fun and and it is kind of like the culmination of this thing we've been working on for a long time and um and i'm i'm really excited about it i i think i think it'll be cool awesome
0: i'm yes i'm also really excited about it i think that's just it's so fun that you are getting to do this and like i totally feel you about you know sometimes you need a break and to just do creative like tell a story stuff and it's so cool that this is just 100% 100% that. Where is it going to premiere? Like, where can people follow you and where can they find it when it's when it's done? Yes,
1: this will premiere on, on the streaming platform Nebula, you know, which we, you know, like have our affiliations with. And- right. uh, We've talked about them a lot. Of, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I will say, I know some people complain like, oh, I've signed up for another s- streaming service. It's $3 a month. It is less <laughs> than a cup of coffee to watch a, a movie that I think might be like an hour long- it's like,
0: it's really not a big ask, <laughs> while also getting access to exclusive content from like a bunch of the other best like yes. creators on the internet.
1: Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. There it's are there are many reasons to sign up for it, but it's going to be on Nebula, and uh, yeah, it will premiere there uh, in in beautiful pristine 4K, in, in uh, looking much better than than YouTube. It doesn't have YouTube's annoying compression that mm, makes right. videos look worse they Mm -hmm. really are but yeah and then uh but in the meantime you can watch all of my my stuff on nebula or are on youtube for free no paywall and follow me on the social media platforms at patrick h willems
0: cool well patrick thank you so much for taking time to continue this conversation about benjamin button (laughs) and forrest gump it's a fascinating (laughs) conversation it's led us to so many places i'm sure it could lead us to more but i feel very Satisfied now, and I'm ready to move on to new things. But I'm glad we got to spend this time together talking about these. Movies. <laughs> me too.
1: Thank you so much for having me and giving me an opportunity to finally dig into this
0: weird <laughs> issue. Always a pleasure. This has been our conversation about Forrest Gump and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to all the patrons that make this show possible. I want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Fittner, and Patrick Willems. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.